continuing our study today of the account of the life of Joseph, uh, picking up in chapter 38. And we won't hear anything about Joseph today, but rather the story takes a diversion uh, to look at Judah and Tamar and their interactions. And you've gotten already a heads up on some of where we will be headed with this. Uh, This just serves to prove uh, that you cannot dodge uh, controversial text just by staying away from Paul's writings. Uh, It was, uh, in some sense, uh, an energizing feeling to get back into narrative in the Old Testament, and though, uh, hey, uh, there's Judah and Tamar. Uh, And so we're right back in the midst of controversy, uh, but we will see God's goodness through all of these things. We'll see God's wisdom in all of these things, even working through the sin of man, these things that are, in some sense, detestable to us and the things that we might not even want to read out loud and yet we see something of God's goodness in these things. So we're going to read together the entirety of chapter 38, verses 1 through 30. You can find that on page 32 of our cart Bibles, if you picked one up. Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 30. And before we read God's word, please join me in another word of prayer. Please pray with me. O Lord, our God, indeed, you are true and good and wise. Everything we receive comes down from you, the Father of lights, and all of these good things you have given us and your word too, complete in every way and true in every way, and useful for building up your people and training us in righteousness. Oh Lord, we pray that you would train us in righteousness today as we come to this word, this strange and perplexing story. We pray that you would reveal something of our own sin and of your grace to us. Reveal something also of your wisdom to bring about your purposes. We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 30. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazid when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enayim, 
which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please, identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed write its truth upon our hearts and our lives. Earlier this week, Tuesday morning, I was on my way into the church office, minding my own business, and I saw something beside the road that made me do a double take. I was there in Carlisle, I was just driving along, and the trees opened to a space where there was a field with tall grasses, and I saw a large dog, shaggy, and pointed ears, and a bushy tail, and sandy colored with flecks of brown and gray in its coat. In broad daylight, it was a coyote right there in Carlisle. Of course, it startled me a little bit. I know there are coyotes in Carlisle. There, there have to be. They're all over the place, but they're not the kind of thing that you expect to see when you're simply going to work in the morning. You see deer all over the place. You see rabbits and squirrels scurrying about, but coyotes aren't the sort of thing that you see every day. And it it stops you a little bit and makes you wonder, if that's, is that really what I saw there? Maybe it was just somebody's dog who got loose. And the thing about coyotes is that there's something about them that's, that's almost simultaneously majestic and repulsive. There are these beautiful scavengers that you might want to take a picture of and show to your family so long as you don't have to get too close to them. Well, as I was reading and studying 
Genesis chapter 38 this week, I kept thinking about that sighting of the coyote. This passage is an unexpected intrusion. As we're looking to see with Joseph what will happen when he goes down into Egypt, and in fact, the story stops right in the middle, the end of chapter 37, Joseph is sold, and beginning of chapter 39, rather, he's down there with Potiphar, and, and this jumps in the middle, and it's not what we expect, and it makes you do a double take. Is that what I thought I saw there? What is that doing there in broad daylight? I mean, we know that these sorts of things happen. All these families and your family probably, and even the families that we find in Scripture, everybody's got their skeletons in the closet, but nobody talks about them. Nobody brings them out into the daylight like this. And so we're surprised to see this. And even like a coyote, some people see this passage as distasteful. Genesis 38, uh, to some, is the biblical equivalent of a nuisance animal. Johannes Voss is normally uh, very uh, apropos in his commentary and very on point, but he says this about Genesis 38. He says, this chapter is so morally offensive that it's not fit for open discussion. It's a nuisance, in a sense. It's scandalous. There's something wild about Genesis 38 uh, that we want to see, but we don't want to get too close. And we shouldn't be surprised to find these things in God's Word. In fact, that's, that's part of the blessing of Scripture, is that it does not sanitize the world that we live in. It certainly doesn't sanitize the people that God uses for His own purposes. Scripture shows us sin right there in its natural habitat, in all its ugliness sometimes, in all its deception and its raw reality. And it shows us the reality of sin so that we would see the God who does not shrink back from using sinful people. This is the blessing of Genesis 38. That it shows us the God who is able to overcome and overturn and overpower human sin to bring about His purposes for salvation. Last week, we began to look at Joseph and we began to see God's transforming work in Joseph, the way that he was shaping Joseph through suffering and making him more like Christ. Well, this week we're going to see a different kind of transformation. You see, the Lord is determined to use Judah and to bless Judah and his family. He's chosen to bring the Redeemer through his family. But before he does that, he's got to transform Judah. And rather than doing it through suffering, as he's doing now with Joseph in Egypt, he does it by exposing him. He does it by laying bare Judah's sin so that he can't run from it as he tries so hard to do. And we'll see him trying to run from his sin in this passage. But the Lord exposes him. He uses shame and sin to show Judah how much he needs him. And this is also the way that God transforms his people. This is what we're going to see today in this passage, the work that God's doing in Judah's life. And we're going to see it unfold in four different stages. And the passage itself uh, wants us to read it in these different sections because there are a few time markers in the passage. You see that uh, it's there in verse 1. It happened at that time. And here's the first stage of time for Judah. It covers about 20 years or so. The next stage of time begins in verse 12. In the course of time, and this one covers maybe a year, maybe a year and a half. 
And then the next one shows up in verse 24 about three months later. That covers maybe an afternoon. In verse 27, when the time of her labor came. And that narrows the focus even more to a precise moment of birth. As you see, the focus is narrowing as we go farther and farther, but we're going to see it unfold in, in God's transforming work through different periods of time, <clears throat> excuse me, different periods of time in Judah's life. Well, the first period of time that we see, verses 1 through 11, is a time of turning aside. It's a time of turning aside. Verse 1 sets the trajectory for us. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite. That's a small statement. Just a little deviation, just a slight veering off course, but it is preparing us to see the rest of the sin that will plague Judah and his family through the whole chapter. It's not surprising, it's not a coincidence in a sense in verse 16 that the same word is used again in connection with Tamar. He turned aside to her at the road. He veered slightly off course and sometimes that's all it takes for our sin to grab a hold of us and to grow so big that we can't handle it. It takes just a slight veering and a slight turning aside. Sin has the tendency to grow like a kudzu vine and to entangle and snarl and wrap everything that it can get its tendrils upon. But often if you're able to trace it back to its roots, you find there's, there's just one little thing there, something that seems so insignificant that it, it couldn't possibly cause all that damage, could it? It's that one little click, and it leads you down that rabbit hole of websites and images that burn themselves into your memory for decades, and you can't get rid of them. Just a slight turn. It's that first flirtatious glance with somebody that you know you have no business glancing at that way. It's that little fib that you told, but you've got to cover up that fib with a lie, and that lie has to be covered up with deceit and evasion and a whole string of falsehood until it's out of your hands and bigger than you can handle. And that's what Judah did. He turned aside. <clears throat> the important thing for us to see is, is what Judah's turning from and what he's turning to. Or really, who Judah is turning from and who Judah is turning to. You see, Judah is turning from his brothers, and he's turning to the pagans. He is turning away from God's covenant family, the people that God said he would bless. Abraham and his descendants, the ones who would be a blessing to all the nations, and he's turning instead to the people of the land. The people that God has already told Abraham, his descendants would dispossess. And they would be instruments of judgment from the Lord upon their sin. And Judah turns away from the covenant family and he turns to the pagans. He gets himself a best friend. And Hira goes everywhere with Judah. Almost everywhere we see him, Hira's there. He's running errands for Judah. He's even counseled to Judah. He's celebrating with Judah. And Hira's there, his best friend, his closest confidant. Judah also takes for himself a Canaanite wife. In fact, that's just about the only thing we know about his wife is that she's a Canaanite. We don't know anything about her beauty or her wit or her, her finesse or even her name. We only know she's a Canaanite. And there's this quick succession of verbs. In the Hebrew, they're stacked one on top of another. He saw her, he took her, he went into her. That's the summary of their entire relationship. She conceives and bears a son, and she conceives and bears a son, and she conceives and bears a son. Sometime later, she's dead. That's all we know of the daughter of Shua. 
But it's this turning aside, you see, from the family that, that God had called Judah to be with and to live with and to dwell with and, and going after the Canaanites and, and their sin. He even takes a Canaanite wife for his son, Tamar. And Judah should have known better, shouldn't he? He should have heeded the warning of his fathers. He should have remembered what Abraham told his servants so many years before. What did he say? He put his hand on him. He said, swear by the Lord, you will not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites. He should have remembered growing up in Paddan Aram under Laban's thumb. Why was he and his whole family there working for so many years? It was because Isaac said the same thing to Jacob, his father. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And so what does he do? He turns aside. He does not heed the wisdom of his fathers or the warning of God about the sins of the Canaanites. He should have kept communion with God's people instead of running off and joining himself to the unbelievers, and he turns aside. It's that little deviation that makes all the difference in the sins of Judah and the sins of his sons. In fact, the story of, of Judah's family from here on out is a litany of wickedness. That's the word that characterizes his first two sons, Ur and Onan. They were wicked in God's sight. Now, with Ur, we have no idea what the wickedness was. It ought to be telling, though, that Ur is the first person in all of Scripture that says, he was the first individual that was so wicked God had to put him to death. The son of this one who was supposed to be a member of the covenant and he is wicked. And the Lord slays him. And then with Ur dead, Judah commands Onan to marry Tamar to raise up children in his place. We saw this today in Ruth. You, and you're familiar, if you're familiar with scripture, you know about this custom. It's called leveret marriage. It doesn't have anything to do with the Levites. It has something to do with the Latin word lever, which means brother-in-law. It's this custom where one brother would marry the widow of his brother if his brother died uh, without any children. And God worked it into his own law for his people later in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It was still in practice at the time of Jesus, we find, the way that the Sadducees questioned Jesus in the temple. It was everywhere in the ancient world, and for good reason at that time, in a sense. Because in that culture, if you were a widow and you had no children, you were bound to destitution. You had no way to provide for yourself. You had no one to look out for you. You had no one to provide for you when you got into old age. And so it was a mercy to these women that they would have someone to look after them. It was also a mercy to the men because the most important thing you could do as a man at that time is to pass on your family name. If you died without children, you disappeared. You were erased from the common memory of the people. Nobody cared about you if you weren't there. And so uh, this custom normally had two responsibilities attached to it, to provide for a widow and to provide for the one who had died. You see both of those in verse 8. What does he say? Judah said to Onan, go unto your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, there's the first duty, to the widow, and raise up offspring for your brother. There's the second one. So Onan is brought into this custom as one who has duty and responsibility to care for others. And the wickedness of Onan is that he cares only for himself. He cares only for himself. Oh, he's content to take Tamar. Sure. 
He'll use her for his own ends, and the way the scriptures read, the word there, whenever, is important. He doesn't just go into Tamar once, but this was his habit. Sure, he'll take Tamar, but not in a way that he can provide for her. Not in a way that she will get anything in return, anything lasting that she can receive, someone who will take care of her, and he's just using Tamar. He's thinking only about himself. And it tells us twice in verse 9. It says, Onan knew the offspring would not be his. And it says again, So he did the deed in such a way so as not to give offspring to his brother. He was looking out for himself. He didn't care about Tamar. He didn't care about his brother. He was looking out only for himself. And that was the wickedness of Onan. You see, now that his big brother was gone, Onan was in the first position. And if he were to raise up a child for his brother, he would, in a sense, be disadvantaging himself. Did you hear uh, in the story of Ruth today, the man who was there, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to raise up offspring for him because I would ruin my own inheritance. This is at the back of Onan's mind. If I do this and help my brother and his widow, I'm going to be putting myself at a disservice. And so he thinks about himself. He refuses. And for the second time in the same family, God punishes wickedness with death. Now, this is startling, this story about Onan and Tamar. But it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us when we understand what Onan has been seeing from his own father, the character that we know and that we find in this passage about Judah. What do we know about Judah so far? Well, he's concerned with what he can gain. He's concerned with protecting himself. Do you remember in chapter 37, we read last week, his own brother is in the pit, and Judah's the one with that wonderful idea. What profit is it if we kill our brother? Let's sell him. Let's sell him. For 20 shekels, we'll divide it among the 10 of us that are here. We'll each get two. It'll be great. Two shekels to sell off our brother. He doesn't care about his duties and his responsibilities. He cares about himself. And then we see in verse 11 that faced with a decision to care for Tamar, Judah does basically the same thing that Onan did. He uses her. He disregards her and her needs because he's protecting himself. He seems to be totally oblivious to the wickedness of his son, and instead he thinks Tamar must be cursed. Anyone who gets too close to her ends up dead, and so there's no way I'm going to give Shayla to her but I'll tell her that I'm going to give Shayla to her. Just like my son Onan, I will have all the appearance of giving her what she needs, but I'm actually going to hold back what would be able to provide for her. It's the same sin, isn't it? He's looking out for himself. And he says, yes, 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 I'll, I'll give you my son Shayla, but Tamar can wait 50 years if she wants to. Shayla will never be old enough to marry Tamar. He has no intention of caring for this woman, so he deceives her, and he abuses her, and he sends her away empty-handed. This is a tragic story. Of all the stories in the Old Testament, this ranks right up there with all of them. Chapter 34 and the defiling of Dinah. Chapter 38, Judah and Tamar. This is one of the most terrible stories that we see in Scripture. This first period of Judah's life is filled with a man following his appetites and looking out for himself. He is ignorant of sin. He is quick to accuse. He's willing to rob a widow of her rights. And it all began with just a little bit of turning aside. And so quickly it's out of hand. 
That's the way sin works. It has the tendency to grow and to turn into great wickedness. Ask your elders later. They've seen the pattern played out. They've seen people walk away from the church, and normally it just begins by, I can't make it to Bible study this week or next week. You know, church is hard to get to. And so they leave off fellowship with the saints. They break off friendships that they used to have with believers. It's easier to hide things that way. It's easier to excuse things that way. And instead, and in the place of fellowship with believers, they they take up the voices of skepticism and unbelief and self-gratification. Those become their closest confidants who, who follow them everywhere. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, bad company corrupts good morals. And before too long, all those things that you would never think of doing, well, they just become commonplace. And sin grows bigger and bigger and bigger, and the voice of conviction becomes so faint that you can hardly hear it. What we learn for this time of turning aside is there is great danger in little sins and the way that they have a tendency to grow. So, dear friends, be aware of a little turning aside. Just a little bit. Beware. The second period in Judah's life is a time of hiding. There are several things hiding uh, in this section, verses 12 through 23. Some of them are hiding a lot better than others. In fact, some of them, uh, people think that they're hiding, and they're not hiding at all. That's what we find in verse 14. At the end there, Tamar saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. What does that tell us about Judah's sin, which is what he's trying to hide here? His deception. That's what he thinks is hiding. And this tells us that Tamar is a discerning woman. That's the first thing it tells us. And the second thing is that Judah is not as slick as he thinks he is. After that whole thing with Onan, he thought he could just get rid of her. Out of sight, out of mind. He still had a responsibility to this young woman. Notice later that he's the one who pronounces the sentence of death. He is, in some sense, responsible for her, and yet what does he say? Go back to your father's household. Just wait. Put on your garments of mourning and dress as one who is, who is without husband and who is a widow, and, and you wait there until I come and get you. And time reveals what Judah thought he had concealed. He had no intention of caring for Tamar. He had no intention of of protecting her and providing for her. And Tamar saw through Judah's lies. That's the way that it often works. We try so hard to cover up our sin. And the only people that we hide it from is ourselves. Everybody else sees it. Have you ever met someone who's a compulsive liar? Someone who, who always has the best stories and always has the best connections and everything always works out in their favor. And for a while, people begin uh, to, to believe all the lies that come out and then the lies get thinner and thinner and thinner. And you swallow so many of them that your stomach turns sour. And you recognize that the only person that believes anything coming out of this person's mouth is him. Everybody else can see what, what he thinks he's hiding. And that's what happened with Judah and with Tamar. She saw through his lies. And so it's almost poetic when we see the transition from Judah's sin, which didn't hide very well, to Tamar's plot, which was hiding in plain sight. Take a look at verses 14 and 15 again. For Tamar saw, here's what she saw, Tamar saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. 
Okay? Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. That's all it took. It's all it took to hide from Judah was just a little covering of the face, just a little veil, just a little deception. And Tamar got so close to Judah that she could get from him what he had denied to her. Now we read this and we say, come on. How could Judah have missed this? I mean, it's a veil. Yeah, he couldn't see her face, but that had to be some giveaway, right? Her hair, her voice, her demeanor. How could Judah have been sucked in so quickly? How could he not have seen her? The truth is that Judah was never looking for her in the first place. Here goes Judah again. He'd long since given up being concerned for Tamar and her needs. He continues to look out only for himself, and Tamar knew it. The overall picture of Judah that we see in verses 12 through 23 is of a crass man who is so drunk with lust that he follows his appetites headlong into destruction. It says in verse 12, In the course of time his wife died, and when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. That's also really revealing. And when it says that he was comforted, that's probably talking about a, an almost mandatory time of, of mourning for his wife. Maybe it was a week. Maybe it's 30 days. We don't know. We've seen already in the previous chapter that they tried to comfort their father, and he said, no, I will not be comforted for my son. We've seen already that Judah sends Tamar away and says, you wear the clothes of a widow, and you wait. And yet Judah's wife died, and he was comforted, and he went to a festival. That's what sheep shearing was. In, in, the, uh, in the agrarian society, harvest was the big deal, but in the shepherding society, it was all about the sheep shearing. It was a time of wine and merrymaking, and if you were a Canaanite, that's when all the prostitutes would come out because they were sacred temple prostitutes, and they would honor the gods, their pagan gods, with, uh, with illicit sex as a form of worship. And that was the way they gave thanks for plenty and for provision and for harvest and, and for all of these sheep and the flocks. That's what they did. And Tamar knows, she hears, she hears word that Judah's going up to the sheep shearing and she knows him better than he knows himself. He's going up for a little fun, a little me time. And Tamar is a shrewd woman. And she plants her trap in plain sight and Judah falls right into it. It is most important that we know that Tamar's trap is set in a way that actually leaves Judah no possibility of hiding anymore. There's that scene of bartering in verses 15 to 18, but what she comes away with are all of his identifying possessions. It says that she got his signet, his cord, and his staff. The signet uh, probably was a cylinder that he would have worn around this cord around his neck. And if you've ever seen uh, those movies where they have the medieval seal and they pour the melted wax and they stamp the seal and off the letter goes, uh, the same sort of thing in the ancient Near East, except it was on soft clay and he would take the cylinder and he would roll it along the clay and it would leave an impression that said, Judah uh, is the one who has, uh, who has given his guarantee of this sale or of this purchase or of this letter or whatever it was. It identified him and his... Uh, his staff was probably ornately carved and had some symbol that represented uh, all of his status and who he was, and she comes away with these things. It would be like going uh, to a prostitute on the street and saying, well, I can't pay you right now, and she says, that's fine. Give me your driver's license, all of your credit cards, and your social security number, and we'll be straight. That's okay. And that's what she does, and she gets away with them. 
And he has no way to hide from this. And she set his, her trap, and he has no idea. That brings us to the last thing that's hiding in these verses, and that is Judah's embarrassment. Again, he doesn't hide it very well. It ought to be telling that he doesn't go to give payment himself, but he, he sends Hira. He knows what he's done. He can't go anywhere near the scene of the crime, so he sends Hira with this goat, and Hira comes back with nothing but the goat. And Judah knows, and he tries one last time to hide his sin, but he also tries to hide his stupidity. His signet, his cord, and his staff were far more valuable than whatever service he thought he was putting a deposit on. It was a total bonehead move. And he knew that if he kept trying to get these things back and he kept prying into this situation, everybody else would know what a bonehead he was. Let's, let's just leave it, Hira. Otherwise, we're going to become a laughingstock and people will know what we've been up to. He's the kid with his hand caught in the cookie jar and he just wants to get away. Forget it. Nope. Mm -mm. I don't want anything to do with it. And he tries to hide his embarrassment. You ever notice the way your favorite sins make you stupid? It happens with lust, of course, like we see with Judah, but it happens with all sorts of sins. It happens in the way that you will say things when you are angry that you would never say in regular conversation. It happens that your heart of covetousness gets ramped up and you can justify basically any purchase that you think you need at that moment. This will fulfill me just this once. It doesn't fit in the budget, but I can do it because I need it and I want it and I've got to have it. And it makes you stupid. That's what sin does. It shows up in the way that your gossiping tongue will repeat stories that sound outlandish and ridiculous even to you. But it feels so good to tell that story, doesn't it? That's the way sin works. It leads us into situations that we regret and damage that can't be undone and ultimately into sin that cannot be kept hidden for long. And this leads us to the next stage in Judah's life, beginning in verse 24. Thankfully for Judah, God was leading him into a time of repentance. A time of repentance. This is the third stage that we see in Judah's life. And it happened about three months later. But there is a transformation that occurs almost right before our very eyes as we watch what Judah says. Do you notice the difference in what he says between verse 24 and verse 26? Verse 24, let her be burned. Verse 26, she's more righteous than I am. Do you understand the difference between those two? He moves so very quickly from condemnation to confession. In verse 26, Judah is a man full of anger and indignation. Can you imagine the nerve of Tamar? She's supposed to be waiting for Shelah. She is, by all accounts, betrothed to his last son. The only one Judah has left. It's a slap in the face. She has sullied his family name. She has dishonored the, the memory of her first husband. And his condemnation is immediate and ruthless. This is the worst punishment he could probably conjure up. Burn her to death and the child that's in her womb. Just get rid of him. His condemnation is also hypocritical, folks. It's also the way that sin very often clouds our view. This immorality that Tamar was involved in took two people 
And Judah was one of the two. And he condemns her for the very sin that he has just engaged in. Do you notice the text footnote in the ESV? What does it say in verse 24? Tamar, your daughter, has been engaged in prostitution. That's the word. And moreover, she's pregnant by prostitution. Well, guess who else is involved in prostitution? It's Judah. And yet he condemns her. But then in verse 26, he is a man who's humbled. He confesses his own deceit and his disregard. And for the first time in the entire narrative, he's concerned with righteousness. For the very first time, he's concerned with something other than what he can gain. He says, she is more righteous than I. She did the only thing that she had to do to seek justice. It was the only thing left in her power to right the wrong that had been done to her. And he says, she is the one who's righteous. We even see in this text there's some evidence that, that Judah continues in real repentance because he bears fruit in keeping with repentance. Unlike Onan, who would do this over and over again, it says he didn't know her again. This wasn't a matter of convenience. He didn't continue to use her after the truth had come out. He he continues in repentance, in genuine repentance. And it also says in chapter 46 that when uh, when Joseph's family comes down into Egypt, Judah is there and so are his sons, Perez and Zerah still undoubtedly very young and still most likely with their mother. And that means that he also took Tamar into his home and provided for her and cared for her. He was outed. What could he do? It's an incredible transformation. This is the beginning of the Judah that we're going to see later. Again, it's not a coincidence that uh, when they're worried about who will go and how will we make sure that Benjamin can come back, Judah's the one who stands up to his father and says, I will be pledged. The same word. Not just my signet, my cord, and my staff, but me. I will be a pledge of his safety. He will come back. And when they think that Benjamin's not going to be able to come back, what does Judah do? He stands in his place. Take me instead. Send the boy back to his father. He doesn't care only about himself. Do you see the transformation that's happening? There's repentance here. Folks, when you see a transformation in someone, a change that's that's radical you have to ask where it comes from. How did this happen that he would move so quickly from condemning someone for the sin that he also was engaged in to saying, I'm one who now cares about righteousness and I am one who's in the wrong. How did it happen? How has he changed? Well, it came about through exposure. It came about through what one pastor calls the grace of shame. That the Lord was kind to Judah, to show him his sin. And he used Tamar, and he used her shrewdness, but God brought Judah to the place where he could no longer hide from what he was doing. Tamar brought out those things, and it was like smelling salts. It was like a mirror to someone who had never seen his own face before, and he can no longer run from what he's been doing. He sees his sin in its natural habitat, in all of its ugliness, in all its revulsion. And he has to own up to what he is and what he's been doing. It was the most merciful thing that the Lord could have done for Judah. So whatever you're thinking, whatever you're 
that you're feeling as you're going through and you're reading Genesis chapter 38, don't feel bad for Judah in verse 25 because he got caught. Verse 25 is where God's kindness shows up. That was the best thing the Lord could have done for Judah. He confronted him with his sin so that he could repent of it and turn from it. Folks, the amount of energy that we spend trying to hide our sin is astounding. Just like Judah. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Just like every other person. We've got our tiny little fig leaves that we think will cover from everyone else and from ourselves what we do when no one is looking. And we don't realize how pathetic it is. We try to run from our sin and ignore our sin and hide our sin. The most gracious thing that God did for Judah in this chapter was to bring him face to face with sin that he could no longer ignore. Maybe that's the gracious thing the Lord needs to do in your life. Maybe there's a sin that you try to hide and by golly, no one's going to find out about it. That's how you keep it under control. That's how you keep it under wraps. Nobody else can know what goes on. And you take all this time trying to clean up after your sin, but what you need is simply to confess and to be exposed and and to be shamed. Shame is actually a good thing. We live in a culture that's trying to eradicate shame from every corner of our lives. You don't need to feel shame for your sin or for your immorality or for fornication, for any of these other things. That's really just part of a bygone past that some uh, religious person, some preacher in some suit standing in a pulpit is trying to lay on your conscience. You don't need shame. You can be rid of it. But shame is there for a reason. You know, sometimes I'll say to my wife, when I bend my arm this way, it hurts. Don't bend your arm that way. That's what shame is supposed to do. God has given us this grace of shame so that when we see our sin, we recognize how terrible it is and we go away from it and we say, Lord, I can't handle this. It's bigger than I can deal with. It was the best thing the Lord could have done for Judah was to show him his sin. And maybe that's the thing the Lord needs to do for you is to expose your sin, to bring it to the light of day. It's only when our sin is exposed, that we are able to experience what Judah did. This is the last stage of his life. It was a time of grace, a time of turning aside, a time of hiding, a time of repentance, and a time of grace. That's how we can summarize Judah's story in chapter 38. Here's a man who's been openly shamed and humiliated. Everybody knows his despicable deeds. At least in this town, whatever town he's living in at the time, he's going to be known as that dirty old man. The one who didn't care for the widow, the one who couldn't keep his hands to himself, and everybody's going to know, and you know the way these things play out. You see them in the media. It normally follows one of two scenarios. Sometimes the supposed creep will will make a speech, They'll begin to own up to what they've done, but they'll also hold something back and play the victim card. I'll tell you a sob story about all the things that led to why they weren't really in control of what happened. Look at everybody on their side, and then they'll go into some sort of self-imposed exile in a a, a swanky rehab somewhere in L.A., and, and after that, in four or five weeks, they can come back, and slowly, slowly, they'll come back to life on social media, and they'll reascend to the hills and the pillars of influence and power. That's one scenario. The other scenario is that the person owns up 
and names their sin, and they're never heard from again. The world moves on. They forget them, and they find somebody else. And the way that we see Judah failing in this passage, we expect the second scenario to play out. Now, I bet the Israelite story will just move on without Judah. Who needs a patriarch like that? You might be excused for thinking that God would move out, would move on without Judah. But the truth is that this isn't the end of the line. The Lord's not finished with him. We heard it today already. You you know where this is going. Rob gave us a heads up. We read from Ruth and we saw that Judah and Tamar somehow become a blessing to Boaz and to Ruth. This is what they say. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And 13 years after that, 1,300 years rather after that, that would be really short, 1,300 years after that, Matthew included Tamar in that list of four women in that genealogy. Did you notice? Four women, every one of them a Gentile, every one of them with a questionable past of some sort. And there was Tamar, and there was Rahab, and there was Ruth, and there was the wife of Uriah, who you know as Bathsheba. And isn't that a a point of encouragement at the end of this passage here? This sordid tale, and yet the Lord delights to use those who are supremely broken and sinful and deceitful. Yet he delights to use people like Judah and Tamar and you in what he's doing in the world. He delights to transform us as he exposes our need for him and for his grace. The Lord delighted to use Judah and Tamar to bring about the births of David and Solomon and Jesus. And that's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to know that just as suffering wasn't able to undo God's plans for Joseph, sin is not able to undo God's plans for Judah. It's an encouragement to know that if you've come to the Lord today as one who's been just veering ever so slightly in your own direction, if you've come to the Lord today as one who just desperately wants to bury your head in the sand because you don't want to look or think about the reality of your sin, if you've come to the Lord today as one who has seen your sin in all its raw reality and its hideousness, and it is too much for you to bear the encouragement the Lord delights through Jesus to give mercy to those who recognize their sin and turn from it, who see the wickedness of what goes on in their own hearts and turn to the Lord and receive his grace. That's what Judah had to do. He had to, in a sense, move through these steps, and so do we. This is the ongoing process of being a believer. This, is, this sounds like we're winding down, and this is an evangelism sermon, and I want somebody to be saved, and I would love for that to happen. But this is also the thing that happens in each of our hearts as we go on in the Christian life. We continue to veer, and we continue to hide, and then we're exposed by God's grace, and we come back, and we see his mercy. We see the Savior who gave himself to cleanse us from every sin and every impurity, to tell us that that he already knows all the wickedness of our hearts better than we do. He's not surprised at the things that you're hiding. It says in Isaiah somewhere, "I, I wait to be gracious to you. That's what the Lord says to his people. 
He waits for us to wake up to our sin and to see it and to name it for what it is because then we come to him exposed by his grace and we fall at his mercy and we say, you're the only one that can deal with this because I can't. And he waits to be gracious to us. Here's the encouragement that we find from Judah and Tamar. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you are good and true. And we are conceived in sin and guilt and iniquity. And yet you have given your Son the one who is the only Savior of God's elect, our mediator, the one who is without spot or wrinkle or blemish, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is our Savior and our Redeemer. Thank you, O Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you that you wait to be gracious to us. So, O Lord, we pray that you would not allow us to run from our sin or hide from it, but that you would allow us the grace of falling before you, confessing before you, and finding your mercy in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that and transform us by your spirit as it happens. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We come now to a table which proclaims God's love for his people, his grace and mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. The symbols that we find here, the bread broken and the cup poured out, symbolize the the life that was given by Jesus Christ on the cross, his body broken and his blood poured out for sinners to make us new creations and to cleanse us from every sin and impurity. If you have seen your sin and turned in faith and repentance to the Lord, this table and this promise is for you, that he is gracious and compassionate that he is merciful to those who cast themselves upon him. If you've not yet done that, if you're still running from your sin, you've never confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, I ask that you'd allow these elements to pass. And for those who have seen and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, come. See this reminder of his mercy, this promise, that he's not done transforming you yet. That's what this is at this table. We don't believe that these elements will change in any way. They will still be bread and cup. But God's people, as we receive his grace through Jesus Christ, we are changed and transformed. And that's what we find here at this table, his mercy to grow us in Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. If you profess faith in him, come and receive and be fed by him. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Please join me in prayer. Lord our God, we thank you for this table set before us, which shows us not only the symbols, but uh, gives us the seal, uh, the, the seal of your approval uh, and your promise that all those who feed upon Christ by faith will be raised with him, will be cleansed by him, and will be changed with him. 
And so meet us, O Lord, in this sign and this seal. Cause us to feast on Christ even as we come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples, and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup and gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. 